Thanks for listening to Summit PA Sermon Audio, weekly teaching from the Summit Church in Indiana, Pennsylvania. SummitPA.church, every life made different. So today we're starting a series on the book of Judges, and, uh, and I will tell you, you might not be excited about this series, and that's okay. I think this is going to be a helpful series for you. Over the next few weeks, we're just going to walk through some stories that we find in the book of Judges. And really, if you're not interested, uh, I hope this will pique your curiosity a little bit. This is one of the bloodiest and most violent books in the Bible. Um, if I told our, I told our team last night, if, if you were going to give make a Hollywood movie about each book of the Bible and you had to pick a, a Hollywood director to direct a movie, uh, Quentin Tarantino would be directing the film that we would be looking at today. Uh, it is violent, it is bloody, uh, and, and honestly, it is dark. It is not encouraging and uplifting. Uh, what we see are glimpses of God's glory and glimpses uh, of what is to come in the book of Judges, but really what we see in the book of Judges is a group of, uh, of people that are largely um, flawed, and, and not only flawed, sometimes deeply flawed. Um, and so what we, what we see when we look at the book of Judges is a, a series of stories that really is um, tragic literature. And we'll get into more of that in just a moment. It's, it was written possibly by Samuel, uh, but it is named because of the 12 characters that are represented in the book of Judges. Um, these were judges, is what they were called. They were raised up for a season to be uh, military and civic leaders to help uh, deliver the nation of Israel out of captivity. And they were used for a season as a Moses-type figure. Now, they weren't they were like Moses, except with less character. Um, and so what we see are these people who are Moses-type characters. And if you look at biblical literature, you understand that Moses was a Christ-type figure. And so what we see are these glimpses of people who function for a season as a savior, as a deliverer. And what this ultimately does is point us back to the ultimate savior and deliverer, the one who can ultimately save us and rescue us from captivity, uh, is not an earthly being, but it is Jesus Christ. And so what it ultimately does is point back to us, uh, point us back to this point, this man, Jesus. So if you look at chapter one into the first part of chapter two, um, what it's an introduction. So one and two are introductions. And what we see is this, this pattern where Israel falls into captivity. They fail to drive the Canaanites out of the land. And you think, what is the big deal? Uh, and, and this is what I would tell you. When the Israelites were coming out of Egypt into uh, the wilderness and ultimately into the promised land, there was a decree given. God says, you should not be unequally yoked with the people of this land. You should not intermarry. And sometimes you hear pastors say things like that today, and you go, oh, pastor, that's Old Testament, it's no big deal. And what God was saying was, and this goes back to the book of Deuteronomy, where they said an unclean animal shouldn't be yoked together with a clean animal. So don't yoke a donkey and an ox together to plow a field, because there, there's this understanding that their temperaments are different, 
how they work is different, and it's not going to be productive. So it's going to be a mess if you yoke these animals together. And this is a picture of what marriage is between a non-believer and a believer. Their temperaments should be different. Their values are different. And as a result, what happens is uh, it creates a mess. It's hard to work together. Uh, and so there's this, there's this biblical standard here. And so what we see is they were supposed to drive the Canaanites out of the land because God knew if you go into the land and you end up intermarrying with these people, your, your values are going to shift. Your, your, your affections are going to shift. You're going to end up moving in a direction you would, you, I would not want you to move. And so people always go, oh, no, no, it won't be me. It won't be me. It won't be me. And that's eventually what happens. And this is exactly what happens. God calls it. And these, they, they show up. They don't drive the Canaanites out. And what they do instead is they say things like, hey, you know what? We're not going to drive them out of the land. We're going to make them slaves. And so they keep them in the land. They kind of obey God, but not really. How many of you know it's not a good idea to kind of obey God? So they kind of obey God. It's kind of like your kids when you're like, hey, I need you to clean your room. And your kids are like, okay. And two minutes later, they come out and you're like, room's clean. And you walk in and you're like, oh, this room is pretty clean. But then you look under the bed, right? You're like, oh, here's all the stuff. Your room's not really clean. It just appears clean. Does that make sense? They kind of obey you. And this is what the Israelites did. And as a result, Sure enough, the people of, of God start intermarrying, their hearts are pulled toward false gods, <clears throat> and it's a problem. And so what we see in the rest of the introduction in chapter 2 and into verse, uh, chapter 3 is the, the author basically says that this is a story about Israel's moral failure and the, the results of that, the catastrophic results of that. And so that's really what we're looking at today. Um, if, if, you, uh, if you watch movies... Um, in Western culture, we love happy endings, don't we? We, we love at the end where and they all lived happily ever after. Like every Disney movie ends that way. Like if, if Bambi would have ended with his mom dying, at the end, like, oh no, right? That's not how it's supposed to end. Uh, and if you've never seen Bambi, it's been out for like 70 years, okay? Don't blame me that you've never seen Bambi. But Disney movies have happy endings. And that is not the book of Judges. It's not about happy endings, it's not about they all lived happily ever after. They all rode into the sunset and, the, you know, it was perfect. It was good. Uh, it is more Breaking Bad than Disney. Because what we see in the book of Judges is this slow descent of a group of people and individuals at times into darkness, that further away from God. Even some of the heroes we see in the book of Judges end up turning the people of God away from God because of their own idolatry. So what we see is, is, again, a deeply flawed group of people, and I will tell you, uh, I am grateful for that, because what we see in, this, in the book of Judges is that God loves people so much that he will use deeply flawed people. So if you're here today and you think, I'm a mess, I could never be used, I've got a past, I've got a background, I've got issues, I want you to know um, God is a redemptive God. And we see that today as well, but what we also know is God loves people so much that he'll use people like me to reach lost people. He'll use people like you to reach lost people. People that have issues and baggage and hurt and pain and a background and all that kind of stuff. I'm grateful for that today. It's funny, when my girls were little, we would read Bible stories, you know, like stories from the Bible and 
kid terms, and we would see pictures like Samson. And the story of Samson is found in the book of Judges. We're probably not going to go through that over the next few weeks, but um, we covered that a while back. But what, what we see with Samson is this bright, shiny, and he's like happy and muscular, and he looks like a Jewish version of, of like Superman, right? Like that's what he's like. He's like a superhero. But if you really look at the story of Samson, Samson was, um, he was probably a sex addict, he was a guy who had problems with his temper, um, and he was so out of touch with God that when he finally, um, when he finally, like his climactic moment, uh, he didn't even know that the Spirit of God wasn't with him anymore. That this is who he was. This is not the stuff that you would put on the, the wall of your children's nursery, by the way, right? Like, that is not the stories we're telling. We're telling, we're cleaning up the versions, but I'm telling you, we can't tell the stories with any kind of authenticity if, if we tell you that everything is perfect and everything's happy all the time. And so what we see is, if you read the Bible as, a, um, as just simply a moral book, a list of do's and don'ts, you will, you will not know what to do with the book of Judges. Because it's hard to figure out who to root for in many of the stories in the book of Judges. Okay, but what we see in the book of Judges is God's redemptive power over and over and over and over and over again. So let's get started, but let's start in Joshua chapter 24 today. So Joshua led the nation of Israel out of, uh, Moses led them out of Egypt. Joshua leads them into the promised land. And, uh, and, and the book of Judges takes place between Joshua's leadership and Saul, who becomes king of Israel. Between their leadership, their book ended, and this is what we see with uh, the book of Judges. So we start in Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, and it says, and Joshua says this, he says, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I love this. And we hear men make this decree and women will make this decree about their families that ask for me in my house. What he's saying is, hey, there is one God and you can choose who you will serve, but today we've made our decision. We will serve the Lord. And I love this. And if you fast forward just a little bit in verse 31, it says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the works that the Lord did for Israel. And this is as we wrap up the book of Joshua. Now we go into the book of Judges and we finish, kind of finish off the introduction in chapter 2. And it says this in Judges 2.8. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And they buried him uh, within the boundaries of inheritance in timnath Harris in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. And all the, that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So his generation died as well. And it said, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So I want you to hear this. In the book of Joshua, it says, hey, they served the Lord as long as that generation lived. Because why? They remembered the work of the Lord and all he had done for Israel. And then we get to Judges. And it says, after his generation died, there arose another generation and they did not know the work of the Lord and all he had done for Israel. And I will tell you, this is the beginner, beginning of this downward spiral. And at the risk of sounding like a typical preacher, this is why we bring our kids to church. Because I might remember what the Lord did for me, but I want my kids to remember what the Lord has done. Because when our kids start forgetting what the Lord has done, they start devaluing the Lord. They start 
letting their affections take them in another direction. And I'm telling you today, this is important. So we'll come back to this in just a little bit. Othniel was the first judge of Israel. Um, the first major story that we see in the book of Judges, though, is about a guy named Ehud. And I love this story. And we'll start in Judges chapter 3, verse 12. And it says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against the Israelites, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Amorites, the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So what we see is <clears throat> the, the nation of Israel, they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Remember, they forgot who God was. They stopped loving him, stopped valuing him, and they went in a different direction. Their hearts served a false god. And God said, <clears throat> he didn't say, I'm going to punish them. I want you to understand the heart of God. He didn't say, I'm going to send something bad their way because they've been bad and they're going to get punished. They're going to get what they deserve. That's not the heart of our father. A loving father will correct his children. I was hoping more of you <laughs> respond to that. Maybe we need to talk about parenting today. Uh, a loving father will correct his children. If I only give my girls cotton candy, I'm like, well, I couldn't help it. They said they wanted cotton candy. It's like, you're the grown-up, right? Act like a grown-up. And I'm telling you, a loving father will correct his kids. And what we see here is God is not punishing them, but he's correcting them. He's saying, hey, I love you so much that if you keep going down this road, it's going to bring destruction to your life. So I'm going to send people your way. I'm going to send a circumstance your way that's going to help bring you back into alignment with my purpose and my plan for you. Now, I want you to understand, everything bad that happens to you isn't God's way of, of trying to correct you. Sometimes bad things just happen in our lives. So I want you to understand that. But in this circumstance, God empowered Eglon, along with the Amalekites and the Amorites, to take the Israelites into captivity. Um, so just as a side note, <clears throat> a while back we talked about, we went through the book of Ruth together. And uh, it doesn't say this in Scripture, but rabbinic tradition actually says that Ruth and Orpah, two of the characters in the story of Ruth, were actually the daughters of Eglon, the king of Moab. Uh, and again, I can't verify that. We can't say that emphatically. But it's interesting to speculate about that and to look at that, the possibilities. So what we see is Eglon becomes king, and he, was the, he, he takes captivity over the Israelites, and he was ruling over them for 18 years. Verse 15 says this, And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So this is what happens. The nation of, of Israel, they're in captivity. They've got to pay a tax or a tribute to the king. They've sacrificed. They've brought their, their stuff together, and they're sending it to the king, and they are using Ehud to get it there. Uh, Ehud, it's interesting, a couple things about Ehud. It says that he's the son of Ger, the Benjaminite, and it says he's a left-handed man. Uh, this is interesting to me because if you look at the story, um, go back a little bit, Benjamin was actually, uh, the name Benjamin means son of the right hand. And if you look at this, uh, it's not the proper name Benjamin in the original text, it's actually the lowercase so it's actually saying, instead of saying he was the Benjaminite, he's actually saying he was a son of the son of the right hand. So he's pointing out the fact that this left-handed man was a son of the right hand. And this is significant in biblical, in biblical literature. What we see is the right hand was favored. 
That's why Jesus is seated at the right hand of our Heavenly Father, right-hand man, because the right hand is favored. Um, And so what we see even in the book of Isaiah, uh, we see taking the right hand of God because there's power, there's authority in the right hand. And I love this because it paints this picture to say, hey, even if you're the left hand, the left hand can be used if you grasp the right hand. Does that make sense? You might think I'm a reject, you might think I'm a problem, you might think I'm an issue, I don't have any, few, I don't have any value, I don't have any potential, but, but God sees you and he goes, I can use you, I can, I can take you places you couldn't go. And the reason I believe it says he's left-handed is because it's foreshadowing what happens later in the story. It's interesting to me, though, um, in, in the Septuagint, it actually says uh, Ehud is a man with two right hands. And so what it seems to indicate is that he was ambidextrous. And again, you think, what is the big deal about being ambidextrous or left-handed? But I'm telling you, something as mundane as being left-handed can be used powerfully by God if we'll submit ourselves to him. So you might be here today and you think, I have no giftings, I have no talents, I have no abilities. And I'm telling you today, God can use something as simple as you being left-handed for his glory if you allow him. Now what we see here in this passage as well is there's this there's this series of, there's this pattern going on that we see in the book of Judges. And this pattern happens six times in Judges, but we see it happen in Exodus as well. We also see it happen, if we're going to be honest, in our own lives today. And the pattern is this. Uh, the first thing that would happen is the Israelites would do evil in the sight of the Lord. They would do evil in the sight of the Lord. He would send an enemy to bring them into captivity. Um, they would cry out to the Lord, so they would repent and say, God, we were stupid, please forgive us. And he w- he's a good father, so he would, he would send a deliverer. It was a fourth thing. He would send a deliverer. In this case, one of the judges would, c- would be risen up, be called, be called out to free them. And then the fifth thing is there would be peace. Do you know what would happen after there was peace? They'd start all over again, and they'd do evil in the sight of the Lord. Right? There's, so this pattern happens over and over and over. And let's be honest, doesn't that happen for us? As your pastor, I see people all the time that are in crisis. They come to our church, they find the Lord. Man, they're growing in their faith, and things start going well, and then they disappear. They just kind of fade away. And then when the next crisis comes along, they, they come back to church. And I'm not condemning you. This is human nature. So if that is you and that is your pattern, I'm not trying to condemn you today, but I want you to recognize the pattern in your life. This is the same pattern that was, that was at place in the book of Judges. We see this over and over and over again. And so one of the important things for us to do is to stop the pattern, is to recognize, hey, I'm not going to be faithful to God only when he's good to me, and then when things are good, I'm going to chase after my own desires and chase after, right? But we have to recognize that pattern. Let me move on. Verse 16 says this, And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, about 16 inches, and he bound it to his right thigh under his clothes, and he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. I will say, I take issue with the way they describe Eglon. That's hurtful. Um, so what we see is, is Ehud this man, this left-handed man, he makes a, a stabbing dagger, a small sword, 16 inches, and he actually straps it to his right thigh under his clothes. And this is significant because most people are right-handed, and most of them would put their sword on their left hip or on their left thigh so that they could pull it out when they needed. Um, but Ehud understood what his strengths are. And his strength is he can hide a dagger on his right thigh under his clothing. It may never be noticed. 
So he fashions, he builds a sword, he makes a sword, and he bounds it to his thigh. He shows up to present the tribute to Eglon, and we see that Eglon was a very fat man. You know what's funny is um, the word used here for fat in the original language actually means meaty, <laughs> which I think in a lot of ways is worse than fat. I'd rather be called fat than meaty, I think. Meaty just sounds like they want to call me fat, but they're not quite that rude, you know, like... No, Mel, you're meaty, right? <laughs> it's interesting because this word meaty is only used uh, one other time in Scripture to describe a person. It's usually always used to describe a sacrifice. And so what we see is so interesting to me. Eglon actually in the Hebrew means bull. And so what we see is that Eglon, unbeknownst to him, in many ways was going to be sacrificed. He was a meaty bull ready for sacrifice. See, we look at this story differently than they do. Eglon's in this story, and he just thinks I'm living my best life. Man, I'm king. I'm doing well. Man, uh, you know, people are starving, but not me, right? I'm meaty. That's what he is. So we see what's to come. We see that Ehud had fashioned a sword ready for sacrifice, and, and Eglon doesn't even see what's coming. I can imagine Ehud saying, hey, I, I got something for you, big boy. It's coming your way, right? Like, here it comes. If you've never read the story, I'm giving some stuff away. But I, I love how the literature comes together to paint this picture, that, that the reader has a view on this that the people that are involved in the story do not have. Verse 18 says, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. So they present the tribute, and the people that were with him, they were leaving, and he sends them away, and he turns back. In verse 19, but he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, he comes back to the king and says, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded, the king commanded, silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence, and Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. We love secrets, don't we? Nobody wants to admit they love secrets because it makes us feel like a gossip. But let's be honest. Everybody loves secrets. After church today, if you're standing out in the lobby, you're talking to somebody, and somebody says to you, hey, I need to tell you something, but you can't tell anybody else. Most of us are not like, nope, you can't, because I'm going to tell everybody. <laughs> I'm the biggest gossip in this church. Like, it's going to happen, right? No, you're like, no worries, I won't tell anybody. You lean in a little closer. Why? Because we all like hearing information that other people don't have. We all like feeling special, unique, like, oh, I've got, I've got something that's hot. Right now, I'm ready, right? We all like that. And Eglon was no different. He, he wanted to hear the secret. The thing I love about this, though, um, it's interpreted as secret message in verse 19. This word message in the Hebrew, it's dabah. And dabah, it can mean speech or word, but it can also mean things. So there's this dual meaning that in the original language, um, I, I believe Ehud said, I have a secret for you. And he thinks, I've got, a, I've got a secret for you. I got something made special just for you, king. I got a secret for you. But Eglon, he interprets it and goes, hey, I've got a secret message. And then he circles back and he says, I have a message from God for you. I've got something just for you. I've got a message that God is sending to you today. Doesn't this sound like an action movie? Doesn't this sound like, can't you feel like the layers? So Eglon, of course, is interested. He sends everyone out. He, he raises up from his seat. Verse 21 says, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. 
and the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. (laughs) This is an explicit story, right? When I read that verse to my daughter last night, she had come to church service last night, and so we were talking about that after, I said, what'd you think? And she said, Daddy, that story was disturbing. I said, you like the part where the dung came out? She's like, Daddy, stop! Quit it! But I love how explicit this story is because in some ways it's that explicit to show what happens when uh, people defy God. Um, and, and it is, it's in your face. And this is, this is the word of God for us. He reached with his left hand, he took the sword from his right thigh and he plunged it into his belly and he was so fat, he was so obese that literally he could not pull the sword out. The, the fat enveloped the sword. Now this, I don't mean this in a joking way, this is the perfect crime because there is no murder weapon, right? I mean, honestly, if, if the people that come to investigate the crime scene are like, well, I mean, clearly he's dead. I don't know how it, how it happened. And like, Jim, give me a hand with this. And they're like raising up. Oh, there's the sword, right? Like, that's disgusting. Can't imagine that. Can you imagine Ehud after he'd spent hours and hours and hours fashioning this sword and now he lose it, loses it in the gut of the king? Like, how disappointing that would be. Be like, man, I worked for hours on that. Wanted to hang on to it. But here it's gone. <laughs> what we see is Ehud had a perfectly devised plan. He knew if I can hide it on my right side, under my clothes, they're never going to see it. He used his left-handedness to his advantage, and he ultimately did what God was calling him to do, to set the nation of Israel free. It says, then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. Now, I'll get into this in just a moment, but there's some disagreement exactly on the layout and how this happened and what this looked like. Uh, They're not sure, but I'll walk through what I believe in just a moment. It says, when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself. They thought that the king was relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber, and they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. So after Ehud has killed Eglon, he is, um, he's executed his plan. This guy's laying there dead, and he's got to figure out, how do I get away? So he goes to the chamber doors, and he locks the doors. What we see in architecture that day and age is it wasn't uncommon for kings to occupy the highest point of their palace in order, it was basically an open chamber where air could blow through, kind of like if you don't have air conditioning in your house, you open up some windows, you put some fans on, you want to get the air circulating. And so they would go up, and he would receive people in this place, uh, and this was a cool place for him to just relax in the heat of the day. Uh, There was also probably uh, a restroom of sorts off to the side so he wouldn't have to go to another part of the building. So he could retreat to this room, use the restroom, and and maintain his his coolness in in the top of this building. Now what Ehud does, he locks the chamber doors, but he still needs to escape. And so what what I believe he did, and what there seems to be some evidence for, is that he escapes, and one of, one of the things he could have done, and this is the one I just, I love this one the most, I believe that he actually escaped through the restroom. 
through the hole in the restroom. <laughs> if you're going to do that, you know you are committed to your plan, right? At that point, I, I, I might have been ready to die with Eglon. I've been about, you know what? I'm not interested. So what we see is he escapes, um, and while the men are waiting, they don't want to embarrass their kings, they're waiting and waiting and waiting, and finally they'll go get the key, and they find their king dead. And while this is going on, Ehud escapes. In verse 26, it said, Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he paid, uh, said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Now again, I want to come back to, how did this happen? This happened because a guy who was left-handed and knew how to make a sword saw a need. He recognized a need, and he responded to it. And I'm telling you today, no matter how big or small your ability might be, I'm telling you in God's hands, he can use it for his glory. He saw a need. He took ownership. He didn't say somebody else needs to do something about this. He said, I need to do something about this. You know, pastor should really take care of that situation. You know what? Uh, my parents, they're, they're, they're churchgoers. They need to do something about it. Man, the government needs to step in. And no, he said, I need to do something about this. There's a problem. There are people that I love and care for that are in captivity, and someone needs to do something that's something known as me. And I'm telling you today, if churches around our region would begin saying, someone needs to do something and that's someone as me, our community would be radically transformed overnight. This county would be transformed. This region would be transformed. If we would just take ownership and stay in, instead of saying this is someone else's job. And the last thing he did is he risked it all. He risked his life for this. If they would have found the sword underneath his clothing on his right thigh, he would have been killed. He would have been executed immediately. <laughs> he risked his life because he believed so strongly in what God was calling him to do. I'm telling you today, we need people like this. What we see is they had rest in the land for 80 years. This is the longest period of peace for Israel in the whole book of Judges. And it's because Ehud simply did what he knew God was calling him to do. As I said earlier, these stories aren't stories that end with happy endings. And you're thinking right now, this sounds like a happy ending. They had peace for 80 years and they all lived happily ever after, right? But, but let me read two verses later. Judges chapter 4, verse 1. It says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Do you see this pattern? This pattern is at work again. That people forgot who God was. They forgot the work that he had done. Judges 2 that I read earlier, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And I'm telling you today, it's important not just to be used by God. It's important to tell the stories about how God has blessed us and worked in us and, and taken care of us. Because one generation after we are gone, our kids will forget. Your grandkids won't have any idea what God has done, who he is, if you don't tell him about them. 
if you don't say, this is what God has done in our lives. This is one of the reasons we see the nation of Israel, when, when they came through the Red Sea, they, they set up a, a pillar, uh, 12 stones to reminder. When they crossed over the Jordan, they set up this, this, this 12 stones as a memorial to remind future generations, hey, this is what God has done. Let's be honest, that's why we receive communion today, to remind ourselves, this is what God has done. Because we keep telling ourselves the story, this is who God is, and this is the work that he has done for us. To remind ourselves so that future generations don't forget, so that we don't fall back into this pattern over and over and over again. And that's my challenge to you today. Quite simply, what are you teaching your kids? What are you teaching future generations? It's not about church attendance. Uh, I, I told a family not long ago, it's not our job to raise your children. It's your job to raise your children. We want to help you. We want to resource you. We want to support you. But it's not our job to make sure your kids get to heaven. It's your job to make sure your kids get to heaven. It's not our job to, to tell your kids who the Lord is and all that he's done for us. Yes, we come alongside you, but it's your job so that they do not forget, so that one generation later they don't walk away from the Lord. It's my responsibility to make sure my girls know who God is and what he has done for us. Because if I'm not telling them the stories of how good our God is and what he's done, they will forget and they will walk away from their faith. So this is the beginning of a pattern we'll see and we'll talk about this more in just a moment. The first judge of Israel was a guy named Othniel. We won't talk about Othniel today. Uh, but the second judge this is the bigger story. It begins in Judges chapter thir thir um, 3 verse 12. And his name is Ehud, is the judge. And it says this, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered himself, uh, the Amorites, the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So I want to point something out to you. The nation of Israel rebelled against God. They walked away from God. They forgot who God was and what he had done for their people. Their, their hearts were pulled in a different direction. And as a result, God recognizes that. And if you just read the text, it looks like he was punishing them. Because it says he, he strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, his chosen people. He strengthened an enemy against his people. And you go, well, that doesn't seem very fair. Like, was God just ticked off? He was punishing them? No. This is what I want you to know. I want you to hear this today. A good father will correct his children. <laughs> Pastor Dick believes me. Nobody else does. They're like, eh, I don't know. Maybe. A good father will correct his children. And what we see is our heavenly father loves the nation of Israel so much that he's not trying to punish them. He's trying to correct them. He's trying to put them in a position so they can recognize their need for God. He loves them so much, so he's not trying to squash them. He loves them so much that he says, I'm going to send Eglon to take them into captivity. I'm going to send the nation of Mo, uh, the, the Moabites to take them into captivity. And in that moment, they're going to recognize their need for me. And they're going to cry out. And he doesn't do it because he needs it. He does it because they need it. He knows if they're not in that kind of position, they're never going to come back to him. And he loves them so much that he does that. So... Eglon, who was the king of the Moabites, he gathers the Amorites, the Amalekites, and this coalition comes against Israel, and they bring them into captivity. Now, side note I want to mention to you, we've talked about Ruth. Uh, in the past, we did a series on the book of Ruth. Um, Ruth and 
Um, it was her sister-in-law in the story of Ruth. Her sister-in-law was uh, Orpah. Ruth, according to rabbinic tradition, and this is not, this is not in the Bible, but uh, rabbinic tradition, Jewish history says that these two women were actually sisters and that they were actually the, the daughters of Eglon, the king of Moab. So they were Moabitesses is what they were, but tradition says that they were actually the daughters of Eglon. So it's just an interesting way that some of these stories kind of come together. So they were slaves for 18 years, the Israelites were, and this is where we'll pick it up in verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjaminite, a left-handed man. And the people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So, so because they were subjected to the Moabites, the king of Moab, they had to send a sacrifice, send an offering or a tribute to Eglon, and so they used Ehud. He was the one they elected to take him this, uh, this sacrifice, this offering. And it's interesting because he's described as, he's the son of Gera, a, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. <clears throat> and the thing that's interesting about this is, um, if you look in the original text, the word Benjaminite is not a proper name. It's not like they called him the son of Benjamin. What they were saying is, uh, it's, let me see if I can explain this well. The, the name Benjamin means son of the right hand. And so they didn't say Benjamin in the original text. It wasn't proper. It wasn't capitalized. So what they were saying is the left-handed man was the son of the right hand. Does that make sense? They did that on purpose. It's a literary device to help you bring emphasis to this point so they could see, oh, this is an important deal that he's left-handed. And not only was he left-handed, but it says, hey, he was the son of the son of the right hand. Now, in Scripture, the right hand is the favorite hand. The right hand was the important hand. The right hand was the hand of power and authority. That's what we see throughout Scripture. That's what we see Jesus is at the right hand of our Heavenly Father because that is the hand of authority. In the book of Isaiah, we see several times references to the right hand, that, that he stretches his right hand to us, or we take his mighty right hand. And that is the hand of authority and power. And, and some of you have lived your life and you've thought, I'm, I'm not very important. I don't have a lot of potential. I, I just want to get through this thing. And I'm telling you today, you might not have ever thought about it this way, but maybe you think of yourself as the left hand. And I love this because what we see in Ehud is God says, hey, I'm going to take the left hand and I'm going to make it powerful. I'm going to use the left hand for my glory. That which somebody thinks is useless or not very important, I'm going to take that and use it in an important way. Because here's just a side note. Oh, he was left-handed. But I'm telling you, this is important for where this story is going. And you might be here today and you think you don't have a lot of value. You don't have a lot of importance because you can't preach or you can't sing. But I'm telling you today, if your gifting is submitted to God, even if it's something as simple as being left-handed, God can use that for his glory. Um, in the original, well, in, the, in the, the original Greek translation, the Septuagint, what we see is Ehud is described as a man with two right hands. And, and the way it's describing him is a man who's ambidextrous. And so again, uh, he's a man that can use either hand. And that's interesting because it, it tells us a little bit about where we're going in this story. Uh, what we see in this passage we just read, it says that the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer. This is part of the pattern we see in, uh, in the book of Judges. We see this pattern six times, but we also see it in the book of Exodus. Uh, we also see it even in our lives today, if we're going to be honest. What happens is um, the nation of Israel, they fall into sin, so they, they rebel against God. They do evil in the sight of the Lord, is the way it says. Uh, they come into captivity, so God releases an enemy to take 
take authority over them. Um, they repent and they cry out to the Lord. And then the Lord sends a redeemer, a rescuer. That's the fourth thing that happens. And then after that, there's a season of peace. And then the cycle starts all over again. It goes back to, hey, things are great. And they forget that they need God. And they drift from God. And they drift into sin. And they drift into idolatry. And then they fall into captivity. And they go, oh, we're idiots. God, we need you. This happens in the Old Testament. But let's be honest, this happens in our world too. Um, so many times as your pastor, I see people who will come to church, they've been through terrible crisis in their life, and they come to church, and they experience the love and the goodness and the faithfulness of God, and their hearts are changed, their lives are changed, and things begin to improve, and they're growing in their faith, and then they just kind of drift away. They stop coming to church, kind of stop prioritizing their relationship with God, and uh, then when another crisis comes their way, they come back to church. And I'm not saying that con to condemn you, but what I want you to know is there's a pattern in your life, too, if we allow it to be, that, that we can get complacent in our walk with Christ, and we can walk away from our faith. And again, we don't walk away from our salvation, but we, we start, stop prioritizing our faith. And this is what the nation of Israel was doing. So they're caught in this vicious cycle that over and over and over we see this happening. And so we're in the middle of that in this moment. Verse 16 says this, And he had made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, about 16 inches, and bound it in, into, onto his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. I don't really appreciate that characterization of him. <laughs> he might have just liked ice cream. In the meadows, exactly. Uh, it said Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. So he had to fashion the sword. He had to make it. He had to have the skill to do that. So he does that. And then he fashions it, or he, he fastens it to his right thigh. And this is important because most people in that day, just like today, are right-handed. And they would fasten their sword to their left thigh because that's the easiest place to draw it from if you were right-handed. It'd be difficult to draw it from your right side. So what he did is he takes this short dagger, about 16 inches, he fastens it to his right thigh under his clothing so that it would hide it, and he shows up. And there are no metal detectors, but when he shows up, they take a look, they take the swords from the people, and oh, you're good, and he goes into the throne room. And they're looking at him thinking, this guy's harmless, there's nothing wrong, you know, he's, he's totally fine, we've checked him, but they haven't checked him because he's hidden it. I love this too. It says Eglon was a very fat man. Um, the word fat in this context is actually, uh, it literally translated means meaty, which I think is worse than fat. <laughs> if somebody called me meaty, I think I'd be more offended if they just said I was, uh, more offended than I would be if they just said I was fat. But meaty is a word in, the old, in, the, in this passage, or in the Old Testament, that's only used to describe, it's only one of the times it ever described to use as a person, but it's always used to describe a sacrifice. So a fattened calf or a, a, an ox or whatever was being brought to sacrifice. And another thing that's interesting about this is Eglon, who's the king of Moab, the name Eglon in the Hebrew actually means bull. And so what we see here is Eglon thinks they're bringing me a sacrifice, they're bringing me their tribute, but what Eglon doesn't know is he is the sacrifice. He is the meaty bull that's about to be put down. Eglon, I mean, Ehud has something waiting for him, right? I got something on my thigh for you, big boy. I've been making it special for you. 
He doesn't even realize what's going on. I love this story and how it's told because we get to see things that the people that are in it don't see. We get to, we get to the bird's eye view on this. So he shows up to present the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, and this very fat man. And it says in verse 18, And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols of Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commands, the king commanded, silence. And all the attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud, so it was just Ehud and Eglon alone. And Ehud came to him who came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Now, when Ehud says, I have a secret for you, let's be honest, um, none of us like gossip, but all of us like gossip, right? We would all say objectively, we shouldn't be gossiping. But when somebody says, hey, have you heard? Human nature is to go, no, what's going on? Hey, I've got a secret for you. Really? Go ahead. Go on. I'm listening. It's a, it's a prayer request, right? Be praying for them. Um, but our natural inclination is to listen. Why? Because it makes us feel special. It makes us feel important. We know things other people don't know. So therefore, we are important. We are valuable. And in this moment, Ehud says, hey, I've got a secret message for you. But the thing that's interesting is this word message in the Hebrew, daba is what the word is. And this, this word Daba, it can mean speech or message, or it can mean a thing. And I believe what Ehud said is, hey, I've got a secret for you. And he intended it as this, I've got a secret for you, buddy. It's right here. I got a secret for you. It's going to blow you away. But when, he, uh, when Eglon hears it, he hears a secret message. Yeah, I've, got a secret me- I've got a secret word for you. And he says, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Verse 21 says, And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. That's in the Bible. I didn't make up that part, by the way. (laughs) Last night, Emma my youngest, she came to church last night. We were talking about it when I got home. I was fixing dinner and said, hey, what'd you think about the message tonight? You know, what impacted you? God speak to you anything? And she said, daddy, that was gross. <laughs> yeah, the Holy Spirit spoke that to her, I guess. Uh, this is gross. But yeah, it's gross. And this is, this is uh, explicit, right? Like usually when you see stuff like this in scripture, it is not that explicit. But it is trying to lay out, the author is trying to help us see how serious and how real this really is. Um, just to put it in perspective, literally he was such a big man that when Ehud stabs him, he could not retrieve the blade. He stabs him and literally the fat goes over the sword and he is lucky that his hand made it out alive, right? Now, I don't, I don't mean this as a joke, but in all honesty, this is the perfect crime because there is no murder weapon, right? I mean this seriously. <laughs> like they will find it during the autopsy, but uh, they're not pulling fingerprints off that, I'm pretty sure. Now listen to this, Ehud is not done yet because he's killed the king of their enemy who's enslaved them, but he's not finished yet. It says, Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. So let me, let me try to explain this to you. Um, there is some question about what the actual layout was, and so they, they do their 
scholars will do their best to try to get a good understanding. Uh, and so what I believe happened is this. Um, on many palaces of that day and age, there was an upper chamber, and it wasn't really a room. It was more like an open-air room where wind could blow through, the air could blow through, and cool them off during the day. So they would retreat to this area, and they would receive visitors, guests, things like that. And it was not uncommon to have a—it wasn't a restroom, like a running toilet, but they would have a, an area that they could relieve themselves, uh, a closed-off room that was on that level. And so what Ehud does is he— Gets everybody out. His people are gone. The king's people are gone. He kills Eglon. He goes to the door, locks the chamber door so that no one can come from the other level into where they are. And there's only one way of escape. And, and many scholars agree with this. He escaped through the bathroom. Through the hole in the bathroom. Can I say it that way? Make it a little more. It's not explicit enough. It just gets worse and worse, right? And he gets out. Uh, they see that he is out of the room, that the king must be finished, and Ehud goes about his business. So let me continue. Verse 24, when he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely, talking about the king, he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. They waited so long that it was getting awkward. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Verse 26 says, Ehud escaped while they delayed. And he passed beyond the idols, escaped to Sierra, where he, uh, when he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into our hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed, at that time, about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. What we see is 80 years was the longest period of peace in the book of Judges for the nation of Israel. This was the longest period of peace that they had because Ehud did what he was supposed to do. And I'm telling you today, if you want to take notes, there's a couple things real quickly I would tell you. Um, Ehud was just a simple man. It doesn't say that he was terribly gifted, but there were some things he had to do well. But what God did is he took what Ehud had and he used it for his glory. He took his left-handedness, he took his ability to fashion a sword, and he used it for his glory. The first thing he did is he recognized the need. Ehud looked around, he saw his friends, his family, the people he loved in captivity, and he said, someone needs to do something about it. But it wasn't enough that someone needed to do something about it. He said, I will do something about it. So the first thing he did is he saw a need. The second thing he did is he took ownership. He said, it's not my pastor's responsibility. It's not my parents' responsibility. I'm going to do something to fix this problem. And I'm grateful for people who will say, it's not someone else's responsibility, it's my responsibility. I'm going to fix this problem. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to get it done. And I think God is calling us to see the needs around us, to see the captivity of those around us and say, how can I free them from their captivity? How does God want to use me, even something as simple as my left-handedness, for his glory? We see the need, we take ownership, and then he risked it all. He, he could have been put to death. If they would have found out what he was trying to do, he would have been put to death for sure. But that didn't stop him. It didn't stop him from executing his plan. It didn't stop him from crawling through the sewer. It didn't stop him from risking his life. He said it is worth it to see what the payoff is going to be. 
And I think God is wanting to raise up a generation of people who will live like this, who will say, I see the needs around me and I'm gonna do something about it. I'm gonna own it. And I'm gonna do whatever it takes to see these needs resolved, to see these people set free. See, when we read the story like this, doesn't it sound like there was a happy ending? There was peace in the land for 80 years, the end. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, if you read two verses down in Judges chapter four, verse one, it says this, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. Why? Because they forgot the Lord and they forgot all the mighty works that he had done for Israel. One generation later, they had enjoyed peace for 80 years. And one generation later, they walked away from God. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. So today, my challenge to you is really simple. The first thing would be this. Purpose in your heart today to be a man or woman who will say, I'm going to raise up a generation who will never forget who our Lord is and what he's done for us. I'm going to make sure my kids know. I'm going to make sure my grandkids, the kids that I have in my sphere of influence, I'm going to make sure they know how good our God is. Purpose in your heart that the generation that follows you will not be a generation who forgets about the Lord. The second thing I would challenge you to do today is this cycle that the Israelites were in, we fall into it as well. And the Israelites would wait until they were in captivity to cry out in repentance. And I'm telling you today, uh, don't wait till you get into captivity. Um, I think repentance should be a, a part of our daily lives as believers. Um, and I don't, mean, <clears throat> I don't mean it in this way, that you have to get saved every day. Because God's grace is strong and it is big. And, um, and I cannot lose my salvation like I lose my keys. <laughs> right? Um, I used to believe when I was a child that, um, that God would write my name in the Lamb's Book of Life, but he had a bigger racer. And the moment I had a bad thought, he was like, nope, you're out. Then I'd, I'd ask forgiveness. He'd go, all right, you're back in. Like, that was a full-time job for God, right? I really believed that. What I realize now is that, um, that can I walk away from my faith? I believe you can, but I believe it's much more difficult than you have a stray thought. You have a bad moment. Uh, but, but this is where repentance comes in because every single day as your pastor, every single day I pray and repent to God. God, you know what? I didn't respond the way I should have there and it didn't cost me my salvation, but I wanna make sure my heart is submitted to you in such a way that you can correct me in whatever way you need to. I, I want to submit my heart to you today, God, that if there's any part of my heart that's not right, that you can bring it into alignment with you. So God, I, I repent today. I turn away from the direction I was going. I turn away from my attitude. I turn away from my, my thoughts. I turn away from, right? So every single day we repent. And I want to encourage you, don't be like the Israelites and wait till you are in crisis before you go, okay, fine, I repent, I'm sorry. Let's be a people who will just be mature enough to say every single day, God, I repent. God, see, examine my heart. Search me, O Lord. See if there are any wicked ways in me. And when we do that, we come into alignment with him and with his purposes for our lives. And, and when we do that, that's when he can use our left-handedness. That's when he, we begin to see the needs of people around us. That's when we begin to own those problems. That's when we say, hey, I'm, I'm willing to risk it all. That's the kind of person who will do that, is a person who's submitted to God, whose heart is submissive to him and says, God, you've got my life. So my challenge today is really very simple. Are you willing to submit your whole life to God? Are you willing to say, God, if you called me to, I would take a risk. God, if you called me to, I would do whatever you need me to do. 
God, I'm willing to let you use whatever little talent or ability that I might have for your glory. Maybe you're here today and you just need to repent. Maybe you're heading in the wrong direction. Your heart's not submitted to him. Maybe you're here today and you recognize, you know what, I've left it to the church. I've left it to other people to raise my kids in a godly way and I need to do something about that. Whatever the case is, I just want to give you an opportunity to pray today. So if you would, bow your head and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you. We're grateful that you love us. We're grateful that you are for us. That God, when correction comes our way, it's not because you're trying to punish us, but God, you're, you're trying to bring us into alignment with you. So God, I pray for those that are here today that are in crisis, that are struggling, that do feel like they're in over their head. I pray you'd minister in them today. Let today be the day that they would repent, that they would surrender their lives to you for good. God, I pray for those that are here today that maybe are, are struggling to, to raise their kids in a godly way, that Lord, really they've given that responsibility to pastors or, or staff or people at church. I pray that today every parent in this room, every person who influences children in this room would take ownership for those kids, that we would understand it's our responsibility to speak life into them, to help them know who our God is and what he has done for us. God, I pray for those that are here that are walking with you, Lord, but more, Lord, maybe they've never really taken ownership for the people around them. Let today be the day that a group of people would step up and say, no more, not in my community, not in my town. So Lord, have your way among us. God, speak to us what we need to hear. Let your Holy Spirit draw us to you. And I pray that you be glorified. Now with your head bowed and your eyes closed, if you're here today and you say to me, Mel, what you described as me, I'm not really walking with God. I'm not in a relationship with God, but I know I need to be. Maybe you're religious. Maybe you grew up in church, but you recognize today that you're not really walking with him. Your heart's not surrendered to him and submitted to him. But you say today, uh, I want to surrender it all. I want to make him Lord of my life. I want him to be in control. I'm not going to embarrass you or bring you forward. I just want to pray with you right where you're at. So if that's you, would you be bold enough today to put your hand up real high where I can see it and you can put it right back down. Is there anyone, anyone that would say, that's me, Mel, pray for me today. Today's my day. Yeah, a couple of hands. Three hands. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, ma'am. Thank you so much. Who else would join these and say, that's me, Mel, pray for me. I need to surrender my whole life to God. I need to make Jesus Lord of my life. Just a few more seconds. Okay, thank you. I want every person in this place, whether you raised your hand or not, to pray with me this prayer out loud. The word of God tells us that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead, you shall be saved. And so I want us to, to pray this out loud, but I want you to pray it with your heart as well. Mean it with your heart. So say this with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving me and thank you for giving your son to pay the price for my sins. I thank you that Jesus is arisen and alive and well. Thank you that you've forgiven me, that you love me, and that you've made me whole. My life is yours. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Come on, let's give God a round of applause. Listen, if you prayed that prayer today and you meant it, I want you to know you are a new creation. The Bible tells us the old is gone and the new has come. And we want to help you take the next step and begin to grow in your faith. 
The simplest thing you can do is take one minute and fill out a card for us. It's in the seat back in front of you. On one side it says need prayer. On the other side it says salvation. If you fill out the side of the card that says salvation, and then take it over to Information Center when we finish here in just a moment. Give it to them. They're going to give you a free Bible just as our way of saying thank you. And uh, we're excited for you. We're proud of you. And we want to help you take the next step. So please do that. Take advantage of that. We would love to help you. If you're watching online and you prayed that prayer with us today, I just want you to know we want to help you take the next step as well. So if you would, do us a favor and text the word salvation to the number 555-888. And when you do that, we're going to respond back to you and we're going to help you take the next step in your faith journey. So again, thank you so much for worshiping with us today. Thank you for being a part of what God's doing here at Summit Church. Here's what's going to happen right now. The worship team is going to lead us in one more song. We're going to sing together. And while we're singing, our prayer team is going to come up and they'll be available on either side of the stage. And if you need prayer for any reason at all today, no matter what it may be, step out from your seat as we begin to sing. Find one of them. Let them agree with you in prayer. Then in just a moment, uh, Pastor Ricky, when we're done singing, Pastor Ricky Ingrams, our youth pastor, he's going to come and he'll close us out and dismiss us. And please do me a favor. Unless you have an emergency, please don't leave early. I've got a, a brief video we want to show you at the end as we're closing out from one of our ministry partners. So uh, please stick around until we're dismissed. So stand your feet all over the room. Let's worship together one more time before we go today. I tell you guys often, I hope you know, I love you more than you know. And I'm so glad that I get to be your pastor. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week.